0: Welcome to the LCS podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. On today's program, I talk with Doug Ball about his language, SCARE, and its history. Doug, who recently completed his dissertation in linguistics at Stanford, has been working on SCARE since he was 14 and has done quite a bit with it. Today, we'll talk about some of the ways Doug has presented SCARE to the world. Hey, Doug, thanks for joining us on the LCS podcast. You're welcome, I'm glad to be here. So, uh, first and foremost, you're the inventor of the Scare language. By the way, I, I really have a hard time pronouncing it that way. It's always been Scara in my mind. Well, considering my pronunciation is uh, severe anglicization,
1: uh, you're more than welcome to call it Scara. You'd be actually much closer than me calling it Scare. Yeah, with the double R, is it a trilled R? Um I've changed several times. I believe currently it's a tap, but uh there have been times when it's a trill. Of course, I always pronounce it with an approximate. So
0: <laughs> okay, so let's let's think then. Most appropriate would be skiddy. Is the la-
1: how high are you making that last vowel? It sounds pretty high to me, but maybe it's
0: I'll try to lower it. Skitty. Yeah, that
1: sounds closer to, I think, what is correct.
0: <laughs> ah, this is fun. All right, um, so why don't you tell us, uh, how long have you been working on Scara? Um,
1: since when? About July of 1994, I believe, so I guess that is basically 15 years now.
0: Oh, goodness. And so you were in uh, junior high about then? Yes, yes. That was the summer in between 7th and 8th grade. So that's where it
1: started, really? Yeah. Well, so I went to this um, summer camp called the Joseph Baldwin Academy. It's held every summer at the campus of Truman State University, which is in Kirksville, Missouri. And I took a Latin class there. And the way this works is you go for a three-week session, but you're in class seven or eight hours a day and half of Saturday, so you get a lot of hours of instruction, and they can almost fit an entire collegiate semester in that time period. And so I had signed up to take Latin, and I kind of forget what, exactly why, but... um. Around that time, I was kind of bit by the language bug. I took French as an exploratory, as they were called, which was a six-week class outside the reading, writing, and arithmetic, and um, had enjoyed that, and that was at the very end of seventh grade. And then I took this Latin class, and I got a high dose of grammar because, of course, uh, Latin is a... uh, fusional language, and so uh, you'll have to pay attention to what case things are in and all that, and so uh, I thought, well, this is cool how systematic
0: it is, and that's when I began work on Scare. Wow, I had no idea that you had ever touched the Latin language. Did you get pretty conversational in it? No,
1: we were just reading, Um, and so I had very little conversational skills, which matches my ability with all foreign languages that I've learned in my life. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, at, at this point, my Latin is very rusty, and uh, we didn't even learn some of the more advanced things like the 4th
0: and 5th declensions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so shortly after this, when you came back to 8th grade... Um, you did one of the most interesting things that I've ever heard of a conlanger doing, which was you actually wrote a play in your language in Scare that was performed by your class. Can you tell us about that? Well, so it all started because of a particular oddity.
1: Um, In eighth grade, we were asked by our normal core teachers as they were called to come to our parent teacher conferences which is something that Hmm. never happened before and never happened again (laughs) and at my conference were my core teachers and also the gifted and talented instructor and so I kind of forget a lot of the details, the conversations now, but we were talking about various projects that she thought um, would be interesting to do. And one of them was to uh, invent a language and then write a play in it. I think with the idea of exploring the relationship between language and culture. And I sort of casually mentioned that, well, I've been working on this language for A couple of months, so I kind of have one half the puzzle already hatched. (laughs) And so, upon hearing it, it was sort of decided that, well, we'd go ahead and we'd um, work on this project where um, we'd write a play in this language and perform it. And the conference must have been in like October, and this. Project ended up taking the rest of the year. It was actually around this time of year in the middle of May when the play was actually performed. So it was quite some time. We met at particular intervals and one of the times was during like second period when I had P.E. So I missed like a portion of P.E. the rest of the year and... (laughs) I had to go to makeup p e the rest of the time, oh boy. which actually wasn't so bad because the people that were there were never as athletic as the overall eighth grade population, so <laughs> it was usually more relaxed but it was it was a fun project, and i'm I'm really glad I got to do it, and the sort of sad thing is I don't know if i've Ever done something quite
0: that exciting since then <laughs> <laughs> the first question that I think would come to the mind of most people who hear this well, probably a number of questions uh, well first did you did you come up did you generate the content and then translate the entire thing? Did you have help and about how long did that take um so the way uh things worked in
1: the the second semester the the winter and spring, there was sort of a, a scare class that was created. And we'd meet, and there were, what, five or six other people involved. And ultimately what happened was that we together came up with an outline of the story. And then um, we broke up into little groups um, of like two each and wrote particular scenes this was only a one act play with like five or six scenes so okay, it worked it out reasonably well to divide this up this way and all of this was written in English and then I was given the task over spring break to translate the whole thing into scare and I think um I finished it like the Monday of spring break. I was so excited to do this that I was working on it sort of day and night. Wow. Really? Yeah. yeah. Nice job. <laughs> well, there were tons of mistakes <laughs> and I ended up retranslating a bunch of things throughout the process. And I think, the, the other people involved with the play couldn't really deal with a moving target of a script when it was <laughs> random words that they didn't know what they actually meant. And so I believe I, I was the only one who memorized my dialogue in the current version of the language. And other people had various <laughs> versions in between the sort of crappy first translation and
0: uh, the last one. So how enthusiastic was everybody else to learn and work with the language? And then how enthusiastic were they about the play and kind of the whole idea? I think the
1: various people in this scare class who ended up, um, in addition to writing a lot of the contact, were also the main actors in the production. I think they were all reasonably excited to be doing this, I guess in so much as people were generally excited about GT projects in middle school. At some point, we enlisted the art classes' help for uh, decoration and costume accessories and whatnot. And uh, as I recall, those people were a little more of what exactly is going on? But (laughs) I think they were kind of content that, hey, they could apply their artistic skills. (laughs) Now, when this was actually performed, so the entire eighth grade saw this performance, and then portions of the seventh grade also saw it, and there were three performances during the day. And... um. I think a lot of people who saw it were really sort of, I don't really get
0: this.
1: (laughs) Um, And of course, one of the things that came up, so there were, the idea was that we'd put the script up on an overhead and we'd put the subtitles up on the overhead. And I guess the idea was that people would be able to read the actual script and see, oh, so that's what they're saying. They actually aren't making crap up. And um, the subtitles or the English translation would sort of serve as subtitles and they'd have some idea what was going on. Well, I learned from people that I became friends with in high school that had been in the audience that this didn't really work because half the people couldn't read the English translation, and I don't think anyone cared about the script, <laughs> the actual scare words. So they had to sort of sit there and kind of be lost as people utter this gibberish up on the stage. <laughs> and uh. Yeah, I think there really should have been subtitles on both sides so everyone could see and everyone could have a fair shot at understanding what was going on (laughs) so there was a write-up about um, the play in the school newspaper and of course middle school newspapers aren't exactly known for their uh, what would you call it Um, professionalism (laughs) (laughs) but I I got the impression from that article that people were really kind of... I really don't understand it.
0: This has got to be the bizarrest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so if I can try to picture this correctly in my mind. So I imagine, you know, I'm seeing the stage. So was it like on one side of the stage there was one overhead uh, projecting English, and on the other side of the stage there was another overhead projecting the Sierra?
1: Yeah, that's basically it. Now, oddly enough, um, the place in the middle school where the stage was was in between the cafeteria and the gym. Mm -hmm. And we actually performed this towards the cafeteria. So people, um, the stage was not really elevated or anything. Was this outdoor? Um, No, this was indoor. Okay. But, um... So, yeah, people, the audience was sort of on the same level as us, except they were probably all sitting down while we were standing up. But um, only a select portion that was sort of open to the stage. And, I mean, the further uh, sort of to the edge you went, eventually you got to... Hard concrete wall, and that's where
0: they put the overheads up on the side, sort of next to the opening. Oh, uh, okay. Procedural or technical error, shall we say? <laughs> I guess. I mean, it was middle school, so we couldn't have.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think operas do have subtitles, so there must be sophisticated ways to do subtitles in theatrical productions, but such technologies were not probably available to middle schoolers in the middle of the
0: 90s. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'm sure uh, a good number of people are probably curious what the play was about. Do you remember uh, about uh, what what the uh, content was?
1: Yes, so the um, play was entitled... Ket kathor which meant the Stone of Valon. And this was, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of the central character of the play. It was actually an amulet. And the play sort of involved its um, its sort of misadventures through various people's hands. So at the start of the play, one group of people... The Kestri have um, won a battle and captured this amulet. So all these soldiers are sitting around drunk and celebrating. Kind of weird for a middle school production, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the first scene, a a collection of bad guys come and knock out the person that has this amulet and steals it and then they run away with it but they stick the amulet in a holy bag not holy in the sense of sacred but has a hole in it (laughs) so the hole the amulet slips through the hole and they don't notice this and so it's sort of sitting there and then this country simpleton girl finds it and she's like, ooh, how pretty. And she sort of is going along and she comes across this merchant character who realizes what this thing is and how it could potentially be uh, uh, useful to him. So, taking advantage of this girl's uh, naive view of the world, he manages to Uh, get it back from her for a relatively small amount of money and then he goes to the person who originally wanted it and sent his bad guy or his henchman to steal it and he is intent on selling it to this guy and um, making a a serious profit. Well, this doesn't really work out so well because when he goes to talk to the 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 head bad guy, um, the dealing sort of goes sour, and he ends up with nothing, and the bat main bad guy decides to kill him. But now that the bad guy's back with the amulet, he puts it on, and then he goes out and he enslaves all these country simple people and is sort of intent on turning them into... Uh, an army against these against the Kestri that I mentioned sort of stole it in the first place. Mm-hmm. But what he doesn't realize that a spy for the Kestri saw him do this and goes back and reports to the, the king of the Kestri, the sort of main good guy and tells him, Hey, they got the amulet. So the king guy decides, well, we better need some help, or we better get some help, so he goes enlist the help of some wizard, and then together the two of them go and confront the bad guys and there's a big battle both between sort of two armies and then um. Somewhat in contrived fashion, also between the head bad guy and good guy. And eventually the bad guy is vanquished, and the amulet returns to the Kestri King and all is right with the world.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Uh, I'm curious, after this was all done, did anybody kind of develop an interest in Scara or did it just kind of continue on as your own personal project?
1: Well, it's sort of always been my personal project, and no one was hankering, teach me scare, dog. <laughs> um, but this this did um, give me quite a reputation sort of going into high school. I, a lot of people were sort of amazed by the whole thing, and at the start of ninth grade, I decided that I... Uh, wanted to try a season of uh, American football out. And so I joined the ninth grade team. And yes, it was, um, eventually it came to light that I'd been, that I'd written this play probably in part because at least one of my teammates had been a, a uh, Kestri soldier in the play. And (laughs) the football players were very interested in one thing, what the swear words of Scare were. (laughs) Um, It was very convenient that I had devised uh, several of them at that time. Oh, nice. (laughs) They were um, uh, the football players. Both my teammates and even some people from the sophomore team were always very interested in, how do you say
0: this in Scare? (laughs) How adept were you at uh, translating phrases on the fly and how long did it continue?
1: I wasn't really pushed to translate that much for several years and um, I got the impression that, well, probably since I wasn't using it my abilities were probably pretty terrible and then Once I was in college, I was working with the language more then, so I began to develop a better sense, and there was a period of time, I think sort of at the end of my undergrad and the beginning of my graduate days, when I could translate pretty easily if I was writing. I've never had any skill um, coming up with uh, things to say, and often often i remember um in like high school people would sit le- learn that oh you invent a language Well, say something and i was like <laughs> uh i don't know what to say i don't exactly have anything
0: prepared <laughs> i know and then of course uh the uh the interested party becomes immediately uninterested exactly <laughs> Man, Let's let's let's, let's see how, how good you are now. How how would you say um uh Sotar saw bear? Um let's see uh
1: Yok A Tsotar uh Teikorai.
0: Right on. Sounds about right. <laughs> and of course uh I can't say that in Kamakawi because I don't believe it has a word for bear. Well, <laughs> you'll only need
1: a bear if you think your people are going to run into bears
0: sometime. <laughs> and the, these are very bear-sheltered people. I suppose uh, they'll have to borrow a word for it from somewhere, perhaps from Scare. It's more than open for the taking. <laughs> uh, so, how, how much did the universe that you created for the play how much did that later play into the scare culture or did it at all? Or just how, how does it exist in the, in the uh, life of your language?
1: Well, so the, the, the sad thing about the play is when I first uh, started inventing and into the play era, speakers of scare were essentially space faring elves. Huh. And um, so the, all the culture around the Scare Play actually had to do had, um, had with different ethnic groups that lived in various parts of the, uh, of the planet, their home planet. And that's actually what the Kestri were, the people that lived around the place that eventually became sort of the, the planetary capital. Eventually, though, I kind of decided that I didn't want to do this anymore, and so uh, all the stuff attached to the play was um, essentially chucked and no longer has very much bearing on the present-day con culture, unfortunately, because I spent a fair amount of time devising stuff, but... I just kind
0: of think outgrew kind of that view of things, so uh, so moving uh forward, let's say about four or five years, tell us about what happened when you went to the University of Rochester. Uh, you started off as a music major, right no no oh
1: i'm I have to be about the only person that's ever gone to the University of Rochester with the intent on majoring in linguistics (laughs) Um, one of the selling points of Rochester was that I could continue my interest in music and continue it I did and I certainly don't regret um, having gotten some music instruction from the folks at the University of Rochester and their associated music school um, the Eastman School of Music but yeah, I and in, I intended to be a linguistics major and actually it was because of that that during um what was it um summer orientation I was placed with an advisor which was really an advisor for figuring out classes during summer orientation only. It was not a very permanent situation, mm-hmm. but my advisor was someone from the linguistics department, so Uh, We got to talking, and I mentioned my language, and that was sort of seen as an interesting thing. And uh, the guy said, well, sure to come and visit me when you come in the fall. And so I did, and he also mentioned to me that I should write this professor named Sarah Higley, and so... I did and I forget exactly what I said, but said something like Well Jeff Runner says that you're interested in invented languages or something like that. Well <laughs> um that was kind of an understatement <laughs> and so yes, yeah, she invited me to come and talk with her and um she would asked me if I'd ever heard of conlang before and I was like what is this word? And <laughs> yes I'd never heard the word conlang before and I'd never met another conlanger before and it was sort of a surprise to discover that she was one and she mentioned this listserv and i never heard of a listserv at that point either so <laughs> Um, but she gave me some instructions for signing up, and so I did, and it was like, oh, wow, there's a whole community of people. Who knew? So that was quite the monumentous discovery. And, oh, so I was also um, continuing to meet with this linguistics professor, and Eventually, it was sort of hatched in the uh, the spring semester, my second one at college, that I'd do this independent study, and I'd meet sometimes with Sarah Higley and sometimes with this linguistics professor, and we would work on fleshing out grammar, and I guess Sarah sort of appointed herself as sort of fleshing out of culture, and so she would try and uh, pose me questions about like what's a t- a typical scare house like and i was supposed to write in scare back <laughs> a sort of description of what it was like wow and this was this was in sort of the the very last strains of the spacefaring elves era so again the all the stuff that I developed was inch- eventually gotten rid of, <laughs> which is again is too bad. But it was it was fun to do. And at this time, the University of Rochester decided to have what it termed um, the undergraduate research and creativity Conf- conference. And I think this was largely to try and promote undergraduate. Research and why they stuck the creativity in there <laughs> puzzles me, but I thought, well, this is perfect, because Scare is sort of a combination of creativity and research, so I submitted some abstract. Who knows at this point what it said, but my speech basically ended up covering a lot of, my history with the language, some of which you've probably heard already, and uh, and uh, some basic ideas about sort of design principles that I was into at that time. And um, it was my first conference talk at any sort of venue, so... I'm sure it was not the best, especially since I'm sort of slowly gotten better at public speaking over the years. but I think it was it was all right. it was certainly better than the talk before me, which was um, some some talk on some English topic, and the girl was trying to stick in like half hour talk in fifteen minutes, so she just would sort have of muttered it quickly the entire talk and it was sort of like listening to white noise and if i'd been really creative i would have recorded some of it i suppose i could have made an interesting musical composition out of it but i didn't have that kind of foresight so
0: i just have to live with the memory <laughs> oh good old english um so when when did the scare culture become what it is today uh kind of a uh, what do I want to say? Not Stone Age, maybe Bronze Age hunter-gatherers?
1: Yeah, I'm actually not so up on my ages, so I'm not exactly sure which age they belong to, but that was that was an idea that I think um, probably got hatched around the summer in between my freshman and sophomore year, and... So that's I guess really when it kind of got um cemented a little bit more,
0: so do you remember what year specifically you joined the Conlang list? Um it was fall of nineteen ninety nine Wow, that was about I think one semester before I joined
1: yeah i I vaguely remember when you joined it was I mean it was always kind of weird. Especially, I think, probably that first year, I didn't know that much about listservs. And so, I didn't know how much sort of coming and going there might be. And so, it was always bizarre when like, oh, here's someone else new.
0: (laughs) Okay, well. It was pretty high volume back then, too. There were a lot of people. Oh, yeah. When my p- mom came out for parents' weekend, I went away, or
1: I went with her to stay in the motel for a night, but then I came back the next day mm-hmm. just to see my, check my AM, email messages, and I had 56 messages.
0: And they were almost <laughs> all from the list, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, the good old days. So, um, uh, for those that don't know... uh. Doug and I met each other online through the conlang list, but we actually met each other in person after gra- after undergrad. Uh, we both graduated in the same year when I happened to run into him. Uh, and I'm going to maintain that I ran into you. You didn't run into me. Um, at uh, U- at UC San Diego, because we had both applied to and been accepted to UC San Diego's graduate linguistics program. Um, Doug had also been accepted to Stanford and was deciding between the two. And he eventually ended up going to Stanford and I to UCSD and uh, he ended up with a PhD and I ended up with a master's. So, you know, I think, I think he made the better choice. Wait, no, that's not what I want to say. How should I say (laughs) this? (laughs) Uh, He, he had the better result. There we go. He carried it through more. He, He carried that torch longer, but, uh, Anyway, so that's that's where Doug and I met for the first time, which was pretty interesting because, as I recall, I didn't, you know, I saw your name on your backpack because that was where your name tag was. I'm like, I know that name. I know I know that name somehow. Uh, And I was pretty sure I knew you from the conlang list, but I wasn't about to ask somebody, hey, are you on the conlang list? Because if (laughs) I was wrong. And they say, what's that? Oh, uh, it's a listserv about created languages. Oh, do you create languages? Uh, Kind of. (laughs) So the question I asked you was, are you on any online listservs? (laughs) (laughs) And you gave me a strange look and said, uh, no, which wasn't exactly accurate, but I don't think you really understood what I was asking. (laughs) Well, at various times when I was an
1: undergrad, I was off the conlang list, because especially after the high traffic of the first couple of years, I kind of decided, maybe this wasn't the list for me so much, (laughs) and I was mostly a lurker, because, yeah, it it always seemed like um, it was hard to know exactly what to say to some people's posts, and... I didn't, especially at that point, have a lot of linguistics, so I was, couldn't sort of say, well, in
0: in uh, Tugan Bessie,
1: things work this way.
0: <laughs> oh, that's funny, because you and I had probably about the same amount of linguistics, but I was uh, quite willing to go out there and say a whole bunch of things, even if they weren't necessarily very accurate.
1: <laughs> well, it probably also reflects a difference in our personalities. I'm Much more reserved than you are.
0: (laughs) Perhaps a bit. So, um, anyway, at this point, we both uh, had gone on to graduate school. I don't think I ever asked you this. Did you mention uh, in your applications anywhere for for graduate school that you did create languages?
1: Yes, yes. I've never been secretive about that in applications. I mean... (laughs) Um, That was largely what my undergraduate application was all about, and I mentioned it again in my graduate one, though I had to talk about some other things, too, (laughs) to get in. So, yeah, it was, was a known fact, and most people, at least that I encountered, didn't have... That much to say about it, one way or another. So <laughs> maybe they didn't look at my file or all my file.
0: <laughs> did you? Uh, did you ever do anything with Scarer or created languages while you were at Stanford?
1: Well, early in my first year, there was a random email sent to the department, and I think this happens from time to time that. Someone asked some random question of people in the linguistics department because they think that's what linguistics is about, but they aren't usually that well informed. Oh, I have stories. (laughs) Someone emailed the department wondering if if anyone knew anything about Tolkien's languages. And uh, this person was from the cable station that was at that point called Tech TV, I think it since became g4 and maybe is not on the air anymore i'm not sure but oh no g4 still there okay so um they um they were doing a special on tolkien's languages because uh i think return of the king was coming out at that point um and so i despite having some misgivings how much I knew about Tolkien and I did brush up by reading his article on Wikipedia the night before which is kind of amazing to think that Wikipedia existed back then oh wow yeah, it was a long time <laughs> but um, yes yeah, so I was uh, I was interviewed and said some Kind of intelligent things about J.R. Tolkien, and they also talked a little bit about my language, and I showed them on my computer screen my lexicon, and it was it was a fun little thing to have done. Um, other than that, though, in graduate school, there wasn't a whole lot. Um, there was. A, I did TA for Introduction in Phonology and Phonetics, and one of the things that people had to learn was to do transcription practice, and so one of the things I would do is I would uh, make up sentences of gibberish and then pronounce them, and on a couple of occasions I actually used scare. The problem with this whole thing is that with my sort of lack of skills in the foreign language sound reproduction area. (laughs) My sentences were usually uh, quite variable, and this caused probably more problems than it was really worth for the exercise. And (laughs) what I really should have done is taken my laptop in there and just played them recordings of people or recorded myself saying things and then just played that and not attempted to do something like that online because I think I didn't help anyone's cause by being sort of the inconsistent producer of weird (laughs) sounds. (laughs)
0: Uh, uh, So one thing that was nice was that you were able to make it to both um, the first and second language creation conference and you presented at the first one i remember yes yes yeah <laughs> that was a lot of fun in fact i remember i used some scare in my presentation at the first language creation conference was oh yes one. that was a neat bit by the way
1: i don't really like that it's a shame i'm thinking about changing that particular part of the language ooh <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: man one question on my mind, at least, is what what are the goals? What are your goals for the future with SCARE now that you're kind of uh, moving on and looking to move into academic linguistics?
1: Well, um, yeah, it's an ultimate, or it'll be an interesting question whether I um, actually end up in academic linguistics or in some other industry. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's it's not completely clear to me what exactly the goal should be, or whether it's um, really any different than it's it's been for a long time. I mean, I've always had this thought of that I want a, a language that's at least typologically plausible. Um, if not perhaps a bit eccentric and I imagine that I'll um, keep on working to try and make Scare that way and certainly it's been the case the more I've um, learned about linguistics and cross-linguistic variation the more I am really interested in what the attested typology is and how SCARE does fit in that, and of course that can be tricky because the truth of the matter is that uh, that there's a lot of good work and in-depth work on particular languages, but for many typological questions there is next to none, or next to no research, sort of, on the full cross-linguistic diversity of things. And as a random example, I'll take the realization of the uh, propositional complement and after clauses. So if you're saying, after Doug gave this interview, he blah, 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 um, I'm talking about the part that is Doug gave this interview, how that's realized across languages and... Um, I've uh, only looked at this a little bit, but it's actually not the case that every language realizes it with a normal finite clause like English. Um, There are a lot of languages, it seems anyway, that realize uh, this sort of complement as either a sort of complement clause like that, or is translational equivalent plus a finite clause or something that kind of looks like a relative clause Um, uh, so there'll be like a what looks like a relative pronoun and then the rest of the clause Um, there's also a few languages that uh, use nominalizations and conceivably if you're a conlinger, you could choose one of these, or perhaps for even some extra fun, you could have two options because, in fact, English does allow multiple kinds of compliments in addition to uh, the, the finite clause it also offers. Um, uh, after giving the interview some sort of participular gerund clause as well, um, so you potentially have all these different choices, but who would have known? Because, as far as I know, no one's really looked at this question of how the realization of after clauses uh, varies cross-linguistically, because it's kind of a, a random and obscure fact about the grammar and is, or the grammars of languages, and they, I mean, temporal clauses usually aren't first on sort of the linguist's uh, list of things to find out about a particular language. So if you want to find out some of these things, you kind of have to look at descriptive grammars and figure out sort of what's going on yourself is what I've um, actually found. And I mean, there is this issue too that if you rely too much on particular theories, you're apt to sort of get sucked up into the um into the theory more than the actual languages themselves, so uh you want to or well, I think it's um useful to be informed by what particular linguistic theories find interesting um I think that it's it's dangerous to sort of um, invent sort of within a particular theoretical framework um, Mm -hmm. without sort of being very in touch with the actual descriptive generalizations that exist about language. And to keep that in mind, when you're reading um, particular uh, linguistics works and even particular grammars, people are going to bring with them their own um, view of the world. And so they are going to kind of uh, tell you what's interesting about that language given their own view. And um, that could potentially uh, skew the data one way or another.
0: Wow, that's that's actually a really good point. And you know, I never ever thought about after clauses at all. And I'm not even certain if I've ever invented a word for after in any single one of my languages now that I think about it. <laughs> Except Seriously? that I, I do know how I would do it in Kamakawe though. Yeah, I think cool. I gotta I think I gotta invent it. I don't think it exists, but I know how I would do it and it <laughs> it will be it will accompany a finite clause. So mm. I was just trying to think of how Spanish does it and I'm pretty sure it's después de something. I don't don't know they what comes after that?
1: Don't they use a k clause? Cuz that's what that's what French and Italian do. It's después uh, que maybe. Maybe French does operate que and um Italian if I'm remembering correctly and I actually read a paper by someone who's a, a visitor at Stanford that's all about the semantics of before and after in Italian, so you'd think I'd know this better. <laughs> but it's maybe dopo okay or, or is it prima? Mm-hmm. I know the two words for before and after in Italian are dopo and prima, but I think I might have got them backwards.
0: Wow. Okay, so this I just I just went to Babelfish for Spanish. This doesn't look completely right, but I think it's 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 close. Después um, de que él diera la charla, él comió un. I just put sandwich in there. The word for sandwich is sandwich. It's, it, it's put. Imparedado. i ne- I've never heard that word. Maybe it exists somewhere. <laughs> but, but okay, so they have they they and they have k okay, and then they have the subjunctive there. Wow! So I've learned yeah. something new.
1: <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a subjunctive one too. Yeah, there's that. That's what's that's what's kind of weird is after events pretty clearly are realized. Because if you're saying something happened after, aren't you basically committed to the view that the thing that happened first actually did happen? Yeah, I think so. So why would you use the subjunctive, which marks sort of unrealized activities? And my only guess is that um, it must be some sort of, um, I guess, analogy or sort of overextension, whereby the subjunctive is... Moving into being a marker for any subordinate clause, not just unrealized ones, but doubtlessly that's not a complete change. And why that should happen in after clauses is a puzzle. Hmm. Well, Someone's
0: well. dissertation, perhaps, but not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of dissertations, so did you want to tell us about your dissertation just a little bit? Um, it's long.
1: It's it about is.
0: I can attest to that
1: <laughs> it's about uh Tongan. it's entitled uh, Clause Structure and Argument Realization in Tongan and it uh, looks at various regions of the clause and argues for particular constituents and then looks at a series of i guess what you consider argument structure phenomena, including case, noun incorporation, the instrumental applicative, and uh, goes through a a fair amount of data about what's going on in Tongan. Um, For instance, there is uh, an interesting amount of variation in uh, the case marking patterns of dyadic predicates in Tongan. So you might think that oh, if you just got two arguments, you're either going to have nominative, accusative all the time, or ergative and absolutive, depending on what kind of language you have. And Tongan happens to be an ergative one. Um, But, in fact, there are certain uh, verb classes that are very prone to be marked with absolutive-dative. There's even some that are um, often absolutive-locative. And uh, this... These facts have been known for a while, but I don't think they've been so appreciated by the uh, syntax of Polynesian literature prior to my dissertation. And I also looked extensively at what kind of um, predicates allow for noun incorporation, which um, is a kind of investigation that hasn't really been done before. So... um, It's actually not completely clear how universal my findings are, but I'd certainly be interested in finding out and refining the typology some more. And the instrumental in Tongan is marked with this word Aki, and um, it does some interesting things, but one thing that I didn't realize it did until I started investigating it is you can actually get two Aki's and... A single clause, one that's close to the verb, but I argue isn't actually an affix, and one that's sort of later and looks more like a preposition. And um, and I guess I can lay to claim, I discovered the double hockey construction. <laughs> as if that's uh,
0: something worth
1: bragging about.
0: <laughs> well, it's a perfect pickup line, I think oh yes (laughs) hey baby do you know I discovered the double hockey construction (laughs) that was you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well Doug thanks for talking with me and thanks for joining us on the LCS podcast sure alright we'll talk to you later okay You can find out more about Doug's scare at sketar.tripod.com. That's T-S-K-E-T-A-R.tripod.com. Our intro and outro music is by Gary J. Shannon of fizzywig.com. This podcast would not be possible without you. So please, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for people to interview, music we could use, or an interesting story to share... Email or im us at lcs at conlang.org or visit our website, podcast.conlang.org. I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the Language Creation Society podcast. See you next time. Fiat lingua.